stuff is working. People are getting out of debt. And we've given more than we ever imagined we could yeah. give. Hope is real. We are so excited to offer that course um, for you guys. I, I can speak on behalf of having been a student in that class before. My wife and I had such a great opportunity. Uh, we have six couples signed up already. We're hoping for about 10 total. Um, of those six, if, if uh, you want to, uh, those materials for five of those couples are in right now. And so uh, you can stop by the office and pick those up whenever. Um, and we'll go ahead and uh, order that sixth one here soon. And then the easiest way is just to hop on a church Facebook page um, and click on the link and just register right there. Then you can get instant access to all your materials and, and it'll get shipped and, and uh, everything will be just, just delightful. One thing that I learned in talking with the folks at Financial Peace University, uh, they said the greatest tool, the greatest tool um, for this class is to invite anyone that is curious, anybody that's curious about what Financial Peace University has to offer, come to the first class, which for us is Sunday, February 15th, I believe, uh, at 5 o'clock, or 16th, February 16th, I believe, at 5 o'clock, it's on a Sunday, so whatever that date is right there, um, come and just check out the first week. Just check out the first week. See if it's for you. Maybe it's not for you, but that'll give you a, a hint that it is or it isn't. And if it's not, that's fine. If it is, then we'll have plenty of time to get your materials in before that next week. It is absolutely worth it. I guarantee it. So please, um, I'll mention some more things about it throughout today, but uh, it, is, it is an incredible opportunity. Um, some of you might have seen this morning. I, I decided to post on Facebook this morning as, as I was getting ready because it was cold outside this morning. I don't know if you noticed or not. Maybe you missed that, but it was cold. You could hear the wind blowing where we live. I mean, it was just, it was miserable outside. And I began to think, um, yeah, it, it is cold. And how blessed are we because probably none of you walked here this morning, did you? Now, we all rode on a nice warm cars that we probably all had enough gas in to go outside, start it up, go back inside, let it run as long as we wanted until it was completely warm. Some of us didn't even have to go outside, did we? We have a remote control. We press a button and our car starts all by itself and heats up. Some of us had our cars parked in our garage which is bigger than a lot of people's houses across the world. So it wasn't even exposed to the elements to begin with. And then what happened? Then we got here. How many of you had to run in this morning and put the coal and the, the, the fire in the back here to keep the facility warm? And oh, Nobody did that, did they? That's right. We have furnaces. We're warm. We're cozy. We're safe. We're sound. And yet probably most of us this morning were complaining, weren't we, about how cold it was, about how terrible it is outside. It puts everything into perspective real quick, doesn't it? How blessed, how incredibly blessed we are in this country with the things that we have and the abilities we have and the opportunities that we have, and yet we, we, we whine. We just do. It's like the American thing to do is to whine and complain about stuff. When you take things into consideration for what they are, and then you look around, and, and I'm sure you know some people as well, but there's people within our own church. There's a person that typically attends this service each Sunday morning that isn't here today because they had major surgery on Thursday to repair their spinal cord, just above the vertebrae. Six, C4 to L4, they had fused together. Three to six month rehab. I don't know what kind of pain or things you're in right now, but I guess today probably you don't have much to say in comparison to that. It, it, it's just all about perspective in our lives, isn't it? When we stop and we consider the blessings that we have, 
I mean, I'm the recipient of an organ. <laughs> I shouldn't even be here. I should be dead. Yeah. When you stop and consider the reality in which we live and you take those things in and you quit taking them for granted, it changes your perspective on everything, or at least it should. And we should be so much more grateful. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father God, um, man, I pray that your words today uh, through the life of King Uzziah can ring in our minds and humble us as he wasn't. Father, the words that, that Paul will share with us later that, that demonstrate to us the humble nature of Jesus, our life example. I pray that we take those to heart from this day forward, that we never forget again how humble we need to be, how thankful we need to be for the many blessings that we have in this country. It's incredible what you have given us. May we in turn give thanks and honor and praise and glory to you for these things. Father, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to start off with a little exercise today. If you have your smartphone with you and you have internet access, please, please, please get it out right now, okay? We're going to throw a website on the screen right here behind me, and I want you to pull up this website, and I want you to enter in your data, okay? The website is global, the word global, rich, the word rich, list.com. Type that, that, that in your URL browser up there at the top, and then put in the following information, Choose the United States of America, the USA, because it should be in dollars, okay? And then you're going to go, and you're going to put in your annual income in that box. Now, I know not everybody has internet, internet access, so don't, don't worry about that. Um, I have some numbers that I've worked up for you, um, so I'll share those with you. But the rest of you, go ahead, put that in, and then start scrolling down. Start scrolling down that list after you put your numbers in, and just see how you compare to the rest of the world. Now, for those of you that don't have internet, let me tell you what we're doing. This website takes the average income and it compares with some other random things from around the world. So what I did was I went on the internet, wonderful internet. I think 2018 was the most recent number I could find. Um, the average household income of Brazil, Indiana. The average household income according to the census of Brazil, Indiana was $37,992 and some odd cents probably as well. Okay, that averages out to about $19 and some change per hour, per person, or per, 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 for that family. Here's where they stand in global rank. The person making 37,009 a year is in the top 0.65% of the richest people in the world. Consider that. And then it goes on to share some more interesting things with you. It would take the average laborer in Zimbabwe 37 years to make that same amount of money, the $37,900. It takes us in America, if that was our household income, a minute and 49 seconds to earn enough money to buy a Coca-Cola. It takes the average worker in Ghana seven hours to do the same. It takes us a minute and 49 seconds. The same monthly income would pay the salary of 165 doctors in the country of Kyrgyzstan. Now, if you're like me, I had ab absolutely no idea where Kyrgyzstan was. So I put it on the map for you. It's between China and Uzbekistan. Yes, all those stands are right there together. That is where that country is. Completely landlocked country between a very interesting group of other countries. Now, what will the world do with this information? When you realize, when you come to the point where every single one of you in this room is in the top 1% of wage earners in the world, in the world, what does our country especially love to make you do then because of that? feel guilty. 
That's a shame. Oh, we're, you're just, you shouldn't be that wealthy. You shouldn't have that income. You shouldn't do that. Well, I'm here to tell you that that is not the way of God. If you are a follower of Christ, if you've chosen Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, our King has already declared us not guilty before Him. So there must be some other response that God is looking to elicit by blessing us with these things. And absolutely, that's what this whole series is about. Being thankful, being grateful, feeling incredibly blessed by what God has given us, and then acting on that blessing. We feel so blessed, we are so honored, we are so thankful for this, that we are now looking for every possible way we can to return thanks to Him. Is that how you view all that God has given you? Or are you feeling guilty because of what you have? Now, this same realization should also humble us. We'll talk a lot about humility today, but should humble us in this way. Think about the ways that we have struggled, all of us probably, at some form or fashion in our lives. Think how we have struggled given the incomes that we have in comparison with the 2.4 billion brothers and sisters in Christ we have across this globe. And yet we are struggling with having too much debt because we've bought too much stuff. They're struggling to provide food for today. It it should humble us in our relationship with our creator and king. The question then becomes for us, how do we do better? How do we do this better? Our finances, our relationship with God, our level of thankfulness, our ability to humble ourselves in this world. Next week, Gary Johnson gets to be here, the author of the book. I talked with him yesterday. Wonderful, wonderful retired pastor. You're going to enjoy the opportunity to hear from him next week. But next week, he's going to bring with him a challenge for all of us here at Berea. Um, Here in America, we do a great job of listening to the word spoken. But we do a really poor job of responding to the Lord. You see, unfortunately, Christianity is not a religion of listening. It is a religion of action. It calls us into action. It does, it does not allow us to just sit and absorb the word, hear the word. We have to be doers of the word. So what he asked me when I talked to him yesterday was he asked me to have you for this week pray about the decision that you will make next Sunday. Key piece of information I'm leaving out. What's the question? Haha. Pray about the decision that you will be making next Sunday. God will reveal what God needs to reveal to you through your prayers this week. And you will come in at peace with that next Sunday. Interesting challenge. I love it. Makes you connect with God. I I can't feed you the answer. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. So pray this week about that decision that's coming next week. We are called to be this transforming community. We are supposed to be transforming in our relationships with one another. We are supposed to be transforming our own lives into the likeness of Jesus. One of our difficult, difficult, difficult parts of our lives to transform is that of finances. Let's just be honest, it is. And in the church, when people talk about money, some people get a little squeamish, they get a little uncomfortable, they don't really like that. Should we really be talking about that? Is that really important to salvation? And all those things. Well, here's the thing. Jesus talked a lot about money. And there's a reason. Jesus talked a lot about money because he knew me and he knew you. And he knows how important things and money are to people. And so he spent a lot of time talking about it. So our job then is to teach what Jesus said about money and the purchase of things and stuff like that. And then we're supposed to actually apply 
what Jesus taught. We're supposed to practice what he preached. So join with us in that process. Two weeks ago, we talked about Moses, and he reminded the Israelites, hey guys, don't forget You're about to enter into this incredible land, but don't ever forget that God is the one that gives you everything. He is responsible for everything you have, including this gift of this new opportunity. He shared with us the idea that we should absolutely return thanksgiving to God. And if we don't, if we fail to recognize that God is the source at some point in time, it will be taken from us. The second week, last week, we talked about that king of more. Yes, King Solomon. He had everything you could ever imagine in all of humanity, and he was still pursuing more. And at the end of his life, he figured out that all of it was meaningless. It was worthless. He absolutely busted the myth of more for us and, 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 and helped us realize that pursuit of having more of everything in life will ultimately leave us with nothing. It will cost us more than we were ever willing to pay. Don't wait till the end of your life to figure out and regret that moment like Solomon did. This weekend, we're going to turn to an obscure king, although he reigned for a long time, named Uzziah from the book of 2 Chronicles. So go ahead, open your Bible. 2 Chronicles chapter 26 is where we'll be almost the entire day. Most of the passages today come right in order in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. King Uzziah is an interesting character. Now, I don't know about you guys, okay, Um, but these four topics that we've been talking about, the first one being gratitude, the second one, contentment, today, humility, next week, trusting, trusting in our God. These are four incredible biblical principles, four simple principles to build our lives on. And then when we pair them with these four basic uh, real-life experiences that we can have, these real-life practices, applications that we can use, the first one being debt-free living last week, saving this week the concept of budgeting and the next week the idea of giving when we pair those things up there is a path that we can get on to begin to experience financial freedom in our life still plenty of time to get signed up for financial peace we'll put another video up there we actually have a month until classes start and i I told you the goals uh, six couples is a great starting point but we'd love to have more and it doesn't just have to be people from church so maybe you've got another friend or neighbor or coworker that this would benefit them too come with them you and, your, you and yours come with them and theirs and have a great time going through this together. You'll laugh a lot. You'll probably cry a little. You'll probably fight it out a little bit as you make hard decisions in life. But I'm telling you, in the end, it will be huge for you. You've always heard the expression, a picture's worth a thousand words. Probably a lot more than that in all actuality. So how many of you have ever had to move? Anybody ever move? Did it look like these? I hope not, right? Uh, I hope not. Yeah, it, it, it's pretty awful. Um, but the reality is, moving day. Um, did you know that moving is one of the top 10 most negative, awful things that all of humanity has to go through in their life? That is absolute truth. It is in the top 10 worst things that people dread and, and hate and don't want to do in life. And if you've had to move recently, you know that. It produces so much stress and anxiety, even if you're just moving down the road. Sometimes that's even worse. Every one of us will experience moving day. Some of you already have. Maybe you moved out of your house when you graduate high school or college. Hopefully you move out of your house when you graduate college, right? Um, Hopefully. That's a good thing if that happens. Um, Maybe you moved because of your job. Maybe you were relocated. Maybe you moved to get married. Maybe you moved and joined the military. Maybe it was a total job relocation, and so you had to relocate to a whole other part of the country as a result of that. Moving day even happens in retirement, doesn't it? How many of you have helped your parents move because they lived in this house and they needed to downsize to a smaller 
location. Moving happens at every phase of life. Know that this isn't anything new to humankind. We can go back to the very, very first human beings. They were forced to move, weren't they? Out of Eden. Yeah, now they got kicked out. It was an eviction, but still, they were forced to move out. We think of Noah and his family moving into an ark. And then when they got off that boat, they were who knows where. And they had to totally start over and rebuild. We just talked about the Israelites moving out of Egypt into the desert for 40 years. They lived in one place, if you will, for 40 years. And then into the promised land, moving days happen. And today, we're going to talk about King Uzziah, who ultimately had a moving day that he did not choose, per se. It was forced upon him, but it was nonetheless a reality. So 2 Chronicles chapter 26, beginning in verse 1. Then all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old. He was 16 years old when they made him king in place of his father, Amaziah. He was the one who rebuilt Elith and restored Judah after Amaziah rested with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king and reigned in Jerusalem 52 years. 52 years he was king. Could you imagine now, you probably don't know the history of King Uzziah, and it's really important when you learn that he reigned for 15 years. His father before him was king, right? You just heard that. What you didn't hear was why King Uzziah became king at age 16. He became king because his father was assassinated. His grandfather before him was king, and he was forced out due to con conspiracy within the ranks. His great-grandfather before him was also king for one year until he too was assassinated. Now, how does being 16 and getting to be king sound, knowing that is your family history? As a 16-year-old, what are you doing now every day of your life? Wouldn't you? Could you sleep at night knowing that everyone before you now at this point has been killed in the position you're in because they don't like your family for whatever reason? What a horrible existence, yet he reigned for 52 years. That tells you something about this person, King Uzziah. What would it have been like to have been a 16-year-old grappling with those issues? The name Uzziah means God is my strength. Every time he heard his name, he was reminded that his strength came solely from the Lord. What an incredible way of thinking. And it is probably what led him to the following verses. Verse 4 and 5, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father at Messiah had done. He sought God during the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. Most likely, this Zechariah character was a prophet of God, at least an advisor, counselor to the king. He has a position of influence, and he was a godly mentor, which this young man desperately needed. He taught him to fear the Lord. We want to notice that in these passages it says that King Uzziah sought God. It means he was in pursuit of God. God wasn't always coming his direction. He was going. God was always with him, yes. But he was pursuing God and God's wisdom and God's courage and God's strength for everything he was doing. When you look on in this intentional pursuit, listen to his successes that resulted. Verse 6 and 7, he went to war against the Philistines, a very famous enemy of Israel to this very day, really. He broke down the walls of Gath. Have you heard of Gath? Probably so. Jabna, Ashdod. Then he re rebuilt towns near Ashdod and elsewhere among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabs who lived in Ger, Baal, 
and against the Munites. King Uzziah exhibited this incredible power, military power. He was a capable military leader. He expanded the borders of Israel against one of their most formidable enemies, that of the Philistines. It was an incredible job. He, was, he had these great military conquests, and he realized that God was the one behind the success. It was not his power, but the power of God that make a difference. Verse 8, the Ammonites brought tribute to King Uzziah, and his fame spread as far as the border of Egypt because he had become very powerful So now we're to the phase where he has a reputation, an international reputation, so that people are sending, governments, countries are sending him money, sending him stuff saying, hey, thank you for not kicking our rear in two. We really appreciate you not coming in and taking over and destroying us. That's a good reputation to have in that region of the world. For sure, God blessed him with that. It prevented war ultimately with some of those neighbors. His power resulted in this international reputation. It was crazy. Verse 9 and 10, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate, at the valley gate, at the angle wall, and he fortified them. He also built towers in the wilderness. He dug many cisterns because he had much livestock in the foothills and in the plains. He had people working his fields and vineyards in the hills and in the fertile lands, for he loved the soil. During his 52 years, he did what we expect our government to do. He improved the infrastructure. He made life better for the citizens. He increased their agricultural capabilities, their their, uh, food growing capabilities, their livestock capabilities. He brought water. He did all kinds of incredible things. He secured the area even greater. Wonderful thing. The country boomed economically because of trade now, because they they had more resources. It was a wonderful, wonderful thing. As a result then, more things happened. He had an incredible army. Verse 11, Uzziah, well-trained army, ready to go out by divisions. Their numbers mustered by a couple of big names there in the middle. The officer, under the direction of Hananiah, one of the royal officials, the total numbered family leaders over fighting men was 2,600. More than 307,000 men trained for war. Have you ever looked how big Israel is? And imagine back then, 300,000-man army would have been enormous in that day and age for sure to support the king against its enemies. You see, as your country grows and you get more profitable, more wealthy, then people consider attacking. So they built up their defenses and protected Israel, and the people of Israel were ready to jump in and help out with that process. They saw everything good that was happening for the country, and they wanted to defend it. Chapter 26, verse 14, Uzziah provided shields, spears, helmets, coats of armor, armor, bows, sling stones for the entire army. In Jerusalem, he made devices invented for use on the towers and on the corner defenses so that the soldiers could shoot arrows and hurl large stones from the walls. His fame spread far and wide for he was greatly helped until he became powerful. This king gave all of his warriors their equipment. Now, I don't know if you know a lot about that day and age, but a lot of times you were responsible for providing a lot of your own resources in order to be a part of the army, shall we say. He provided that for everybody. And then it goes further. He invented new technology to help defend Jerusalem. This was a brilliant mind, an incredible king, a great warrior, a thinker in the world of agriculture and commerce. I mean, he had it all. What? a person he was. But in verse 15, his story takes a dramatic turn. If you didn't hear it, that very end of verse 15, for he was greatly helped until, until he became powerful. 
There's something behind that statement, and it goes on to be explained in verse 16. But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord, his God, and he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Azariah, the priest, with 80 other courageous priests of the Lord, followed him in. They confronted King Uzziah and said, it's not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. You know that. That is the job of the priests, the descendants of Aaron, who have been consecrated to burn incense. Leave the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful, and you will not be honored before the Lord God. Uzziah, who had a censer in his hand ready to burn the incense, became angry. And while he was raging at the priests in their presence before the incense altar in the Lord's temple, leprosy broke out on his forehead. When Azariah, the chief priest, and all the other priests looked at him, they saw the leprosy on his forehead, so they hurried him out. And indeed, he himself, the king, was eager to leave because the Lord had afflicted him. King Uzziah had leprosy until the day that he died. He lived in a separate house, leprous, and banned from the temple of the Lord, never allowed back. Jotham, his son, reigned. Or Jotham, is, uh, jo- Jotham, his son, had charge of the palace and the governed the people of the land. The other events of Uzziah's reign from beginning to end are recorded by the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. Uzziah rested with his ancestors and was buried near them, near them in a cemetery that belonged to the kings, for the people said he had leprosy, and Jotham, his son, succeeded him as king. <laughs> But, but after Uzziah became powerful, after he had accomplished, after he had achieved, after he'd accumulated wealth, after he'd earned reputation and prestige, after all of that pride set in, it signals the moving day for King Uzziah. He was, his pride now moved him to a place where he did not belong. As a powerful and accomplished king, he now wanted to take on the role, the assignment, the work of the priests, one which he was forbidden to do. And there was no one, absolutely no one, not one priest, not 80, that could change his mind. But God changed his mind. God stopped him in his tracks. Suddenly he was afflicted with a life-altering, life-ending, ultimately, disease called leprosy in the day. It broke out on his forehead. It happened so quickly that everybody present, including himself, knew this was supernatural and that he had, in fact, sinned. He was escorted out of the temple into quarantine, never to be with the common people ever Again, it was moving day for King Uzziah. The leopard king moved from the live light, from this position of prestige, power, influence, to being absolutely all alone. He was moved out of the palace, apart from the people for the rest of his life, never allowed to return to his temple, to his God in that sense ever again. It was moving day. He didn't just move out of the temple. He moved out of the place of honor that he'd enjoyed his entire life. People had gotten rid of his achievements. Even upon his death, he was humiliated. You noticed, hopefully as I read that, I paused, when I said that he was buried near the kings. He was buried in the same proximity, but he was a king. Like his father, his grandfather, and great-grandfather before him, he should have been buried with the kings, and he was not. To add insult to injury, the only thing that was remembered about him was the fact that he had leprosy. Uzziah moved to the bottom of the Jewish totem pole, the bottom in his country, the bottom in his society. People would have nothing to do with him because of this disease. He was humiliated. And what was it that moved him to that point? Pride. 
Now, some people look at the Bible and wonder what was that first sin that was ever committed, and they go right to Adam and Eve, and yes, that is a sin, and yes, it was actually a sin of pride that drove them out of the garden themselves, forced them to move. But reality, the first sin was that of Satan and his fall from God. And what was it that drove Satan in that moment? Pride. Now, if that doesn't tell you something about us and human nature, to know that we are still going to struggle with this issue of pride, then hopefully maybe today it will open your eyes to that reality. I would challenge you to imagine spending your entire life like a King Uzziah, doing something, maybe something even great, and then at the end of your life, nobody recognizing that that ever happened. A more humorous modern-day example Dr. Scott Fallman has been a, a worker in the area of artificial intelligence for more than 40 years at Pittsburgh's Carnegie Mellon University. And a few years ago, he confessed that he will probably never, ever be known by any, for any of the work that he ever did. Because on September 19th in 1982, he sent out the first ever emoticon. Yes, the first ever emoji. He's the one that invented it. Think about it, your whole wor life work of artificial intelligence. Could you imagine how brilliant this person is? And yet, he will be remembered forever for creating a smiley face. That's it. Yeah, it, it's a humorous, but it's, it's the reality. For King Uzziah, his tombstone clearly said he had leprosy. And that's what was remembered. His military achievements, his inventions, forgotten. The improvements he made to the nation, irrelevant. He had leprosy. He moved to the bottom of that totem pole forever. When you look at us, and the reality that we are in, we have to realize that we ourselves can fall victims of that same exact thing of pride. What is it that puffs us up? For Uzziah, it was his power that he had. Do we have a position of power or a position of authority, maybe at work, maybe within an organization, maybe within our family or our extended family, maybe you're, you're president of a local PTA or the president of your little neighborhood association or things like that. The question becomes, do you enjoy that power? particularly when you use it over others. If so, you're close to stepping across that line. Are you a well-known person? Are you well-liked and respected? Are you popular, followed on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram? Is your name in the proverbial program or on the team roster, if you will? Are you listed as an official of an organization? When your name is mentioned, what is it that people say or think about you? Do they think about how talented and gifted and intelligent or how wealthy or influential you are? If so, be careful because those things can go to your head. Maybe you personally have been trying to work on your looks and trying to improve how you look. Nothing wrong with that, especially if it's a health-related thing. What about your house? What about your skill set or your knowledge? Why are you working on those things? Are you doing them so other people will notice? Or are you doing that for personal reasons? When criticized or corrected, how do you defend yourself? Do you ever admit that you're wrong? Studies say the three most difficult words for people to say are not, I love you, but in fact they are, I do not know. People don't want to say that because pride keeps us from admitting that we don't know something or that we ever make mistakes. Maybe you're enjoying a new car, a new house, new clothes, new pieces of electronics, whatever it is. None of those things are bad. The world might try to guilt you into feeling like they're bad things. They're not bad things, but they can lead to bad things. If we're not careful, all of this can bring us to an unwanted moving day like King Uzziah had. Walking across great spans, some of you have probably heard of Nick Walinda before. He's the crazy guy that walks on the little bitty piece of cable across things like, oh, the Grand Canyon, Niagara Falls, 
Uh, I remember seeing a TV special just a few years ago, I think it was in Chicago, between two skyscrapers. He's walking across that little piece, and it is little, piece of metal. Insane. I don't know what's wrong with those people. I don't know what gets in your head that looks at that and goes, you know, I think this is a good idea. I'm just going just gonna to walk right across. I don't know how you get to that point in life. What you probably don't know about him is he, he's a follower of Jesus. Um, absolutely he is. And as a follower of Jesus, he realizes he has an issue with pride. Now, if you did that for a living, right, and you're like, somebody's talking like, hey, what do you do for a living? Like, well, um, hmm, I walk on wires. Oh, okay, what do you, well, you know, across the Niagara Falls, you know. People are going to look at you differently instantly. Maybe they look like you're crazy, but they're going to have respect for you, if nothing else, right away. Like, wow. You see how real quickly I go, well, yeah, absolutely. That is pretty cool. You're right, I'm pretty awesome. Um, that's where you're going to get to in a relationship very quickly with those people. So he realizes he has this issue with pride. So something he does that most people don't know is after everyone's gone, the media's gone, the autographs are signed, he walks around and picks up trash for three or four hours from all the folks that were there observing his incredible talents and skills. It humbles him, realizing he's now serving those people they don't even know it. He's respecting the fact that they're there and he appreciates it. Why? Why? Because he realizes the pride that can build up inside of him. And he also realizes that very, very famous verse from the book of Proverbs, pride comes before the fall. And in his line of work, <laughs> fall is a bad word, big time. He realizes the consequences, do we? Do we realize the consequences? If we do not move into a place of humility in our lives, wherever we're at in our life, do we realize the consequences? Do we want to be who Jesus was when he walked this earth? Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, an incredible passage, maybe one of some of the most famous words ever written about Jesus by Paul. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. He humbled himself, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance a man. He humbled himself, and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And at that name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, what doesn't matter in this life is whether you humble yourself or not ultimately, because there will come a day where you will be humbled before Jesus, whether you ever choose to do that in this life. There will be a time where you will not have a choice. It's much better to go ahead and choose that today. Jesus humbled himself. What does that mean for Jesus? It means that he lowered himself. It is an action. It is a movement. It's not just an attitude. It is a position that you take physically in this life. You must deliberately want to place yourself in a position of humility. He wanted to come here from there. He laid down his life. As an ultimate sacrifice, he came as a helpless infant in the form of a human body, laid in a feeding trough of animals, washed the feet of his disciples, and then sacrificed his life on a criminal's cross, an innocent man. He willingly took your punishment and mine. Why? Why did Paul write this incredibly deep and rich and thorough description of Jesus and his position of humility? Well, he did write it so that we could learn theologically, have more knowledge about who Jesus was. But there's a greater reason, I believe. He wrote it so that we could see how Jesus lived, and then we could model our lives after Jesus' example. 
The pattern looks like this. Your attitude should be the same of Christ Jesus. Well, what, what did his attitude look like? Verse 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Don't look after only your own interests, but also the interests of others. Did Jesus invite us all to come to him and learn from him because he had all these degrees on the wall? He was this incredible, incredible speaker and miracle worker. Is that why Jesus invites us to him? No. None of those reasons at all. He invites us to come to him like he did in chapter 11 of Matthew, verse 28. Come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus wants us to learn from him because he knows the right way. His path, who he is, he is gentle, he is humble in heart. And humility, humility, one of the most difficult things we as humans can ever, ever try to pursue, try to accomplish, try to be, if you will, in our lives. Yet if we follow Jesus, our goal is to be like him, to walk as Jesus walked and to be humble is a perfect example. When we learn, when we learn how to be humble from Jesus, our attitude is going to be the same as his, one of humility. And it's not that we'll think of ourselves less. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said something to the effect that humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Thinking of God first, others second, and you're down there on the bottom of the list, and that's just fine. God will take care of you there. Humility is not something done to us. That is called humiliation. But something we do, we move into a place of humility, a lower position. We move to a place where we do not cling to our status and our stuff in this world as we become more grateful, more thankful for everything God has given us. And then we begin to realize that we need to do something about our lifestyles. We need to eliminate the debt and the things that are holding us back from being who God wants us to be. As we learn to be content with what we have, and then we act We act on what we've learned in this contentment and we begin to set aside a portion for God right off the top of what he's given us. And then we begin to set aside a portion to save for those rainy days, for emergencies, for others. If any of you have ever had the opportunity and you have money saved and just set aside for whatever and a need arises for someone and you've ever had the opportunity to go and meet that need, maybe even anonymously, you know how great of a feeling that is, and that's exactly where God wants us to be in our lives here. And we're humble, so they don't ever need to know that it ever happened. Consider that. Because as we set aside this money, as we do these things in this order, then we finally begin what it's to learn what it's like to live with a little less in this land of more. Now, that doesn't mean that God will give you less. No, contrary, he might actually give you more. But you don't need more. Now, for many of us, the practice of budgeting is something that we we regularly do, putting all the the numbers together and and figuring things out. How many of you remember this thing called a checkbook? Right? Does anybody still use one? Just curious. Yeah. If I have a first service, a little more, good. There's nothing wrong with that. We are very appreciative at the church because we know that is the primary way a lot of people give. You can give online, absolutely. It's really super easy to set that up, Um, but but writing a check is a wonderful thing. Um, Here's the reality, though. You know a lot of people don't use those tools anymore, and so as a result, the concept of balancing a checkbook really doesn't exist for most people. They kind of just get the end of the month statement. They go, oh, I still got money, and they move on with life. 
Yeah, I can't imagine living that way either. But here's the reality. How many of you stood behind someone in line at the store and they don't even get a receipt? Do you need a receipt? No, nah, I'm good. I just walk away. Like, I'm like, ah, how do you not get a receipt? Like, how do you know what money you've spent? I have no clue. I have to have this piece of paper and I have to write it down. I have to do these things. Now, you might not be as extreme as me. Some of your budget is this. Yeah, I know I make about this much money. I know we have about this much in bills and we have about this much left over and yeah, it all works. That's a lot of people's budget. I get that. Uh, at this phase of my life, I'm not that way. I have a spreadsheet. Yes, actually two different ones. The spreadsheet for the bills has every single bill we have, the exact amount that it is, the date that it's due, and a, a, a column to check off the date that I pay and write down every single one of those bills, along with the total of the bills and the total amount that was deposited, and then I, I see. I actually have a second spreadsheet, which includes all those numbers and all the money that we spend. And so I see, the, right now I can tell you the exact balance of what I really should have in my checking account, not what the bank says I had. Remember, that number is different than what you've actually spent, sometimes by weeks, depending on if it's a check or what that outstanding thing is that you've spent. But that's just me. I'm a very detailed person. I understand. That's extreme. If you take Dave Ramsey's financial piece, one of the very first things you will learn is if you want your money to behave, yes, you kind of got to treat it like a kid. If you want your money to behave, you have to know where every single penny is spent. And you will not do that until you write down every single penny and keep track of it. And it's hard and it's tedious and it's every bit worth it. Right now, this time of year is a great time of year to do something like that because it's kind of the new year starting over. You start right at the first of February. It's even a short month, right? So, so you have less days to keep track of for that process. But here's the reason. Here's the thing. It's worth taking time to sit down with your spouse and write out all of your living expenses, all of your bills, and figuring out what that total is. And then looking and seeing, where are we spending money? And then you can evaluate, are we spending money on the things that we need? Or are we spending money on the things we're pursuing in that pursuit of more that we talked about? You get to assess and evaluate those things. Does my spending reflect the contentment that I should have with all that God has blessed me with? Am I thankful and excited to give back the very first portion of that amount back to God? Or... Or does my giving reflect a different attitude toward God? Does my giving reflect, well, God, I'll kind of give you the leftovers of whatever I actually have left at the end of the month if I actually make it to church this Sunday? Because that's the reality for so many people. As I get through this, as I want more ideas, in chapter nine of your book, there's a whole big, giant, long list of a table of all kinds of things to consider when putting a budget together. If you're interested in doing that, and we would encourage you to, if you're not that organized on your own, then Financial Peace University will get you organized on that. They give you spreadsheets and things. You can just put all the numbers in. It's a wonderful, wonderful tool to use. Oftentimes in our culture, our identity is wrapped up in who we are. And, and it's kind of settled on the big three, okay? The big three, your achievements, your address, and your assets. Think about it. When you meet someone new, two of the first questions you'll often ask in conversation is, where do you live? And what do you do? Achievements and address, right there. First two things you probably know about most of the people that you meet. The third one being assets, the stuff that we have, the car that we drive, the clothes that we wear, etc., etc. There's nothing wrong to think about who we are, but here's what we want to do moving forward. I want to challenge you to think about who you are very differently. Think of it according to Scripture. You and I, we are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation who belong to God. We belong to God. Who's God? If you're talking with the right person, they might ask that question. Who's God? What do you mean God? 
Well, just go back to the ancient description of God where he himself defined who he was to the Israelites. Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. Now that description is profound in so many ways. He used a noun to describe himself with no adjective. God didn't say, hey, I'm strong, I'm eternal, I am love, I am holy. No. He didn't use any adjective. He didn't use any adverb to describe himself. He simply said, I am who I am. The King James Version says something very similar, but one slightly different word. I am that I am. In essence, God is then saying, I am that I was, I am that I is, and I am that I will be. I realize, for those of you that care, that is really improper grammar, but it is great theology. God is so indescribable that his identity needs absolutely no description. It needs no adjective, nothing, no fillers, and that is who you and I belong to. The secret to being able to be financially sound, being a faith-filled Christian has nothing at all to do, actually, with who we are, but it has everything to do with whose we are, and we are a people of God, the great I am. Now, we ask this question every week and every time we get together. I don't care what series we're doing. I don't care if we're studying money. I don't care if we're studying marriage. I don't care if we're studying parenting. I don't care if we're studying a book of the Bible all the way through. This topic's going to come up every week because we have to ask the question, are you? Are you his? Whose are you? Have you given your life to Jesus? It's the most important question we could ever ask anyone. If they haven't made that decision to surrender their life to him yet, then we want to always offer that invitation. You just come forward at any time in this service. We will meet with you. We will pray with you. We will allow you to confess your sins. We will allow you to repent and be baptized as scripture requires us to do. And it will be an incredible moment for you from then until eternity. It's awesome. But the reality is there's a lot of us here that surrendered our life to Jesus a long time ago. And so the question becomes, have you really have you really surrendered, given your life completely to Jesus? Because you might have said, yes, Jesus, I accept you as my Lord and Savior. That's great. But you said, Savior, did you mean Lord? Because if you meant Lord, you're telling Jesus he's in charge of it all. It's all his. Have you surrendered your marriage to God? Have you surrendered your job to God? Have you surrendered your finances to God? Because if you haven't, then you need to come and confess that sin before God and offer it up to him today. That's the reason this is up here. That's the reason we have this whole end of the service. It's one of the reasons why we gather. It's one of the reasons why our church has staff. It's one of the reasons why you are here today so that any of you can come to any one of you and confess these sins to one another. We're called to do that in Scripture and pray for one another and build one another up and encourage one another. Have you given your finances to him? The reality is we're going to come forward here in a moment and you get an opportunity to reflect on the sacrifice that Jesus made for you, to give thanks and offering for this. He died for you, and then he calls us to die to ourselves, to humble ourselves. And so as you reflect on this gift, this ultimate sacrifice that Jesus made for you, ask yourself, to have I died? Jesus, have I truly given my life in honor of you? yet. Maybe there's some personal reflection that needs to happen there. You also get an opportunity to come forward or on your way out. Return thanks to God for all that he has given us. We started this morning by imagining everything that God has given us. Our ability to even get here this morning, it, it, it just blows your mind. You saw exactly where you fit in in the world 
with your income. And it is humbling. And it's something to feel blessed and thankful for. Do we respond accordingly? Father God, as we come before you in this time that we, we do, we, we observe every single week, I pray that it never, ever, ever, ever becomes routine. Father, so many people in the church, and I, I've been that way even as a kid, I wonder why every Sunday do they ask? Why do they, why do, they do the offering? Why do they take communion? What, what, what's the purpose of this? And Father, as you revealed to me as I matured in my faith, I realized it's not something we do, it's who we are. Father, this is our response. This is who we are to be in you. We are to remember the sacrifice you made. We are to give thanks for all that you've blessed us with. We are to offer every opportunity, every time we get together, for anyone who doesn't know you yet to come to know you. And I pray that your gospel is preached through whatever item, issue, book, message is spoken from this stage. So the Spirit may move in those people's lives and draw them into a place where they want to come to a relationship with you. Father, moments ago we mentioned the reality that many of us gave our life to Jesus long ago. But the reality is we've never given our full life to him. We've never given all the elements. My job is still my job. I take pride in what I do. And I've, I've never handed that over you for your ownership and your footprint, your fingerprint on, on all that I accomplish in my work. Father, my marriage, my marriage, I, I, yeah, I, I, you were there at the wedding, I guess, but, but Father, have I put you first in my marriage? Have I honored my husband or my wife in the way that I should? Father, have I given and devoted my marriage to you? Father, my finances, one of the most difficult things to talk about in America. We're all very personal and even prideful about those items. Father, have we given those items to you this morning? I pray that if we have not, that we'll accept the challenge this morning to do just that and to lay that before your altar and say, Father, this is yours. Take control. Guide me, direct me, lead me in your ways. Humble me if that's what's necessary so that I don't become filled with pride and what I think I've accomplished. Father, there's no better example than Jesus and what he did for us. Father, we love you. We're thankful for the many blessings you poured out on us. May we recognize and return thanks accordingly. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.